2: On March 31, 1980, four white police officers went on trial for fatally beating a black insurance salesman named Arthur McDuffie. After six weeks of proceedings, they were acquitted on all charges on May 17th by an all-white, all-male jury.
3: By 7 p.m. that evening, riots had already spread through Miami's Liberty City and Overtown neighborhoods. Over the next three days, 18 people were killed and 800 were arrested. By the time the violence ended, the city had suffered $80 million in damages.
2: The 1980 Miami riots were the first major race riot since the late 1960s. But they didn't come out of nowhere. The city suffered from extreme racial inequality, and the violence was a tragic indication of just how bad things were.
3: However, in the eyes of one local religious leader, the racial tension in Miami was anything but a tragedy.
2: For the man known as Yahweh Ben Yahweh, it was an opportunity.
3: Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
2: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
3: And this is Cults, a ParCast Original Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today we're taking a deep dive into the nation of Yahweh, under the leadership of its charismatic leader, Yahweh Ben Yahweh. The cult was instrumental in helping improve some of Miami's worst neighborhoods during the 1980s. However, underneath the surface, the nation of Yahweh was much less benevolent than it seemed.
2: This week, we chart the early life and various personas of Yahweh ben Yahweh until he finally founded the Nation of Yahweh in 1979.
3: In next week's Part 2, we'll examine the Nation of Yahweh's growth throughout the 1980s and how the empire came crumbling down at the hands of the FBI.
2: You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday.
3: The Nation of Yahweh was founded in 1979 by a mysterious man who eventually called himself Yahweh Ben-Yahweh. The Miami-based organization was a loose offshoot of the black Hebrew Israelite movement and also incorporated messaging from the Nation of Islam.
2: Throughout the 1980s, Yahweh ben Yahweh attracted followers with his messaging that God and the biblical prophets were black. As a self-appointed Messiah, Yahweh ben Yahweh insisted he would lead his followers to paradise.
3: By its peak in 1990, The nation of Yahweh was a veritable empire. It boasted an estimated 20,000 members, with churches in 45 cities across 16 different countries. It has been estimated that the organization had anywhere from $8 million to over $100 million in total
2: assets. To the public, Yahweh ben Yahweh projected a peaceful, benevolent image. In reality, he ruled over his followers with an iron fist. On November 7, 1990, he was arrested and indicted on charges of conspiracy, extortion, and murder.
3: Although Yahweh Ben Yahweh died in 2007 at age 71, his movement lives on in 2019, albeit in a more limited fashion.
2: Yahweh Ben Yahweh was born on October 27, 1935, as Hulon Mitchell, Jr., in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. From the moment he was born, Hulon seemed destined for a life dedicated to religion.
3: His father, Hulon Sr., was a holiness Pentecostal preacher, and his mother, Pearl, was a highly talented
2: church singer. From a very young age, Hulon was convinced that he was special. Even though he didn't post especially impressive grades, he boasted to anyone who would listen that his IQ was so high that it couldn't be measured.
3: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for
2: this show. Thanks, Greg. Although self-confidence isn't necessarily a bad thing, Hugh inflated belief in his own abilities may have been an early sign of narcissistic personality disorder. According to child psychologists Brian D. Johnson and Lori Birdall, narcissists filter information and react on the basis of their egos. Their actions reflect grandiose beliefs of superiority and uniqueness, as well as their need for admiration and worship.
3: Although it's difficult to diagnose people with narcissistic personality disorder before they turn 18, an early warning sign can be a child's egotistical view of extraordinary self-worth.
2: And little Hulon certainly had a high opinion of himself. When he was only three years old, he reenacted the story of Moses leading the Hebrews across the Red Sea for his mother. His role in the story? The burning bush, or God himself.
3: From an early age, Hulon practiced guiding his own little flock, as he was entrusted with the care of what would eventually be fourteen younger siblings.
2: With his father busy preaching at two churches and working a factory job, it fell to Hulon to make sure his younger siblings abided by their father's strict rules. No dancing, no fighting, no stealing, and no improper interaction with the opposite sex.
3: But the ultimate authority in the Mitchell household was still Hulon Sr. If any of his children set a foot out of line, he would punish them as a unit with group whippings.
2: By punishing all of his children any time a rule was broken, Hulon Sr. was practicing collective punishment. According to a study on cooperative behavior conducted by Lei Gao and Zun Wang of China's Northwestern Polytechnical University, the authors ultimately concluded that collective punishment was an effective tool for promoting cooperation within small groups. In
3: Hulan Sr.'s mind, collectively whipping his children was a way to keep them all accountable for each other's actions. However, he wasn't considering the psychological effects that such physical punishments would have.
2: According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, when children are physically abused, it can lead to educational difficulties, low self-esteem, depression, and trouble forming and maintaining relationships.
3: While Hulan Jr. certainly didn't suffer from low self-esteem, he did eventually grow to resent his father's so-called tough love. When Hulon graduated from high school in 1953, he moved away from home and enrolled at Texas College in Tyler, Oklahoma. Freed from his family's restrictive shackles, Hulon studied math and music. He was a talented trumpet player and was certain he could make a name for himself as a jazz musician.
2: But after less than a year in school, a wrench was thrown into Hulon's plans in the form of the Selective Service Act, Although the Korean War was coming to an end, the Cold War was heating up, and Uncle Sam still needed soldiers. If the government's quotas couldn't be met with voluntary enlistments, there was a chance Hulan could be drafted into the armed forces. Hulan
3: knew if he was drafted, it would probably be into the army. Most likely, he would be stuck serving as little more than a lowly grunt. Rather than leaving it to chance, Hulan voluntarily enlisted in the Air Force which historically treated its black soldiers better. In September of 1954, 19-year-old Hulon returned to his parents' home in Enid, Oklahoma, where there was a large Air Force base.
2: But although he was back in his father's household, Hulon had outgrown his authority. As he waited for his official assignment, Hulon started going to parties and dating women.
3: One of those women was 18-year-old Nodi Mae Childs, a kind young woman who completely idolized Hulon. After only a few weeks of dating, they were married on October 15, 1954, in Hulon Seniors Church.
2: Shortly thereafter, the newly minted Airman Mitchell was assigned to Parks Air Force Base in California. The newly pregnant Nodi Mae went with him.
3: Having grown up following his father's orders, Hulon quickly discovered that the military life suited him. The Air Force was its own sort of religion, but instead of worshiping God, Hulon and his fellow airmen followed the tenants set forth in training manuals and were subject to the whims of the United States government.
2: Hulon completed the Air Force's general instructor's course in the summer of 1955. He loved instilling the virtues of duty, unquestioning loyalty, and discipline in others. At the age of 20, Hulon became a tactical instructor.
3: While Hulon had all the rights and privileges of an officer, he still had the title and wages of an enlisted airman.
2: By the summer of 1956, 21-year-old Hulon had two daughters, with another on the way. He began to worry that a career in the Air Force wouldn't be enough to support his growing ambitions and family.
3: As Hulon contemplated his future, the nascent civil rights movement, led by Martin Luther King Jr., had a profound effect on his worldview. Hulon was extremely moved by MLK's message that Christian leaders had a moral obligation to fight racism. It stood in stark contrast to the messages father and other holiness preachers had instilled in him as a youth, which focused less on fighting inequality on earth and more on following God's rules so he could get into heaven.
2: MLK's message also disillusioned Hulon with the military. He didn't see why he should continue to serve a country which didn't serve him or his community in return. In late 1957, his term of service ended, and Hulon and Nodi May moved back to Enid, Oklahoma.
3: Around the same time, Hulon's search for self-fulfillment led him to explore other religions he became particularly interested in the occult teachings of the Rosicrucians, who believed humans could unlock secret wisdom hidden within themselves through discipline, study, and prayer.
2: As someone who believed he was destined for greatness, these teachings certainly appealed to Hulon, but the occult was too much for Nodi Mae to handle. If she wasn't going to adopt his shifting beliefs, Hulon wasn't going to stay married to her. Shortly after they returned to Enid... He filed for divorce.
3: In January 1958, 22 year old Hulon took advantage of the GI Bill, which provided educational assistance to military service members, veterans, and their dependents. He enrolled at Phillips University in Enid, becoming one of the school's first black students.
2: In addition to his studies on the American government and social problems, Hulon spent hours on end in the college library. He was particularly interested in history, war, and world leaders. He was obsessed with analyzing what made rulers throughout history effective. What made people love them? What made people fear them?
3: While at Phillips University, Hulon attended rallies and integration strategies sponsored by the Oklahoma NAACP Youth Council. Embarking on a mission to end segregation in public spaces, Hulon helped organize a sit-in at two downtown Enid lunch counters in August of 1958.
2: But as Hulon became one of the leaders of Oklahoma's civil rights movement, he was dealing with the repercussions of his separation from Nodi May.
3: The divorce trial was on January 7th, 1959, but Nody Mae didn't show up. When Hulon asked for sole custody of their four children, he got it.
2: Hulon relished his life as a single father. He was raising his children, managing a household, and was still a full-time student at Phillips University. While studying historical leaders, Hulon became extremely interested in psychology.
3: Hulan nurtured his new interest by spending his weekends discussing psychology with a small group of other students.
2: During these discussions, Hulon and his fellow students struggled to make sense of their rapidly changing world. He desperately wanted to be accepted in society regardless of his skin color, but didn't see how that was possible.
3: Nevertheless, he was determined to try. After graduating from Phillips on June 1, 1960, at the age of 24, Hulon enrolled in law school at the University of Oklahoma. He was the only black person in his class.
2: Shortly after starting school, Hulon met 27-year-old Chloe Height she was working towards her doctorate in education. Bonding over their mutual interest in the education of black children, Hulon and Chloe quickly became inseparable and were married sometime in early 1961.
3: Unlike Hulon's first marriage, he and Chloe never had any children. For reasons he never disclosed, Hulon had a vasectomy shortly after his divorce.
2: In the fall of 1961, Chloe got a teaching job at Albany State University in Georgia. Hulon dropped out of law school so he and his kids could go with her. A small town of 57,000 people, Albany was still firmly segregated and one of the flashpoints of the civil rights movement.
3: However, Hulon had lost his passion for protests and sit-ins, although he had successfully battled for integration back in Oklahoma. Hulon didn't think it had improved black people's overall place in society. Hulon later wrote, The civil rights movement was about fighting and dying to get inside of oppression, to be better oppressed. You wanted to sleep in the white hotel. The civil rights movement was not about owning a hotel.
2: In his search for meaning, Hulon studied the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, Perhaps most famous for influencing the philosophy of Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam preached black separatism in place of integration.
3: In addition to its message of black empowerment, the Nation of Islam also incorporated pieces of the Muslim religion. Its members were required to adhere to a strict lifestyle. No smoking, no drinking, no swearing, no gambling, and harsh punishment for disobedient children.
2: In the Nation of Islam, Hulon found the philosophy he had been searching for his entire life. In addition to a moral code that harkened back to his upbringing, the message that black people should celebrate their blackness was a revelation. In
3: 1964, 29-year-old Hulon and 32-year-old Chloe moved from Albany to Atlanta, where the Nation of Islam had a major presence. Hulon enthusiastically joined the growing movement.
2: To show his dedication to the Nation of Islam, Hulon dropped the last name Mitchell and took on the moniker Hulon X. According to Elijah Muhammad's teachings, the X represented the true family name that was stripped from Hulon's ancestors when they were forcibly brought to America by white slavers.
3: And when the time was right, Allah would bestow Hulon with a new name, one that would signal his true self.
2: Coming up, Hulon rises through the Nation of Islam's ranks and his spiritual beliefs
0: continue to evolve. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
2: After being empowered by the teachings of the Nation of Islam in 1964, 29-year-old Hulon Mitchell and his 31-year-old wife, Chloe, moved to Atlanta, Georgia. They were ready to fully dedicate themselves to the NOI and Elijah Muhammad.
3: In addition to embracing Elijah's teachings, Hulon enrolled at Atlanta University to continue his education.
2: But Hulon didn't think the Nation of Islam needed any more lawyers. Instead of re-enrolling in law school, he decided to pursue a master's degree in banking and monetary policy. Joining the NOI hadn't robbed Hulon of his upward ambition, and he wanted to be a key figure in guiding the organization's economic growth.
3: As Hulon continued his studies, his wife Chloe also embraced life in the NOI. As a woman, she was expected to stay in the background and support her husband. Although she continued to work as a teacher, she was also responsible for homeschooling her four stepchildren. According to Elijah Muhammad's teachings, public schools were dangerous environments that bred sadists, drug addicts, and perverts.
2: Hulon's dedication to the cause remained as strong as his wife's, On May 31, 1965, he graduated from Atlanta University with a master's degree in economics at the age of 29. Elijah was full of praise for Hulon and named him minister of Atlanta's mosque number 15. Elijah also bestowed Hulon with the holy name Shah, meaning the ruler.
3: Hulon, now known as Minister Shah, quickly gained a reputation as one of Atlanta's most powerful preachers. When he wasn't speaking at his mosque, he could often be found in the city's underserved areas, recruiting hopeless and downtrodden youths looking for a better life.
2: Hulon's message to his followers was simple. Love each other instead of the enemy. According to Hulon, integration would only give black people the illusion of power. In his words, the white man was in control in slavery, he was in control in segregation, and after integration, he was still in control.
3: Publicly, Hulon preached peace and love, but the Atlanta Police Department suspected that privately he was encouraging violence. In March 1967, five of Hulon's followers got into a physical altercation with a passerby who refused to buy the NOI's newspaper from them. Then, after being arrested, they got in
2: a fight with the police. During the trial, Hulon came to his fellow Muslims' defense, radiating peacefulness and respect. Although the defendants were convicted of assault with intent to murder, the authorities didn't believe that Hulon had sanctioned their violent acts. If anything, he had discouraged any violence. The prosecutor came away from the trial with the impression that Hulon seemed like the type who tried to shepherd them along a nonviolent path.
3: But as Hulon gained more respect in the authorities' eyes, he came under scrutiny within his own organization. Shortly after the trial, Elijah Muhammad received reports that Hulon was abusing his position for personal gain.
2: According to anonymous informants, Hulon stole $50,000 from the NOI. According to one of Elijah's closest aides, Talib Ahmad, Hulon was also accused of sexual improprieties, including sex with minors and having homosexual tendencies.
3: In the hyper-masculine world of the NOI, these were serious allegations, almost more serious than stealing the $50,000. Elijah ordered Talib to go to Atlanta at once to investigate if the accusations against Hulon had any merit.
2: We don't know if Hulon actually acted inappropriately or if the rumors about him were fabricated by covetous subordinates who wanted to take his place. Regardless, Hulon made the decision to quit the NOI before the investigation concluded. But simply quitting wasn't enough to get him out of danger.
3: It was all but accepted that Elijah Muhammad had ordered the assassination of former members of the NOI previously. While it was never proven in court, most members of the NOI knew that Elijah had encouraged his followers to go after Malcolm X in February 1965. For his own safety, Hulon knew that he needed to disappear for a while.
2: But he'd gotten a taste for leadership, and at 32 years old, he couldn't return to a life without power. In June 1968, after about a year in hiding, Hulon resurfaced in Atlanta with a new identity.
3: He was no longer Hulon X or Minister Shaw. He was Father Michelle, a play on his given last name of Mitchell, Hulon linked up with a local clothes salesman named Billy Stephen Jones, or Father Jeunet. The two men took to the airwaves as Atlanta's newest radio evangelists for the newly established Modern Christian Church.
2: During his time in the NOI, Hulon had personally seen how a charismatic religious leader could gain influence over people desperate to find meaning in their lives. Having studied the powerful oratory skills of influential NOI spokesmen like Malcolm X and Louis Farrakhan, Hulon had become a gifted speaker. He promised his radio listeners that, for a small fee, he could solve all their problems, whether they were personal, social, financial, or anything else. And they believed him.
3: With the contributions Hulon and Billy received, they bought more airtime. With more airtime, they got more contributions. Soon, the supposedly nonprofit modern Christian church provided them with a lavish lifestyle. Hulan rode around Atlanta in a blinding white limo, dressed in resplendent white robes. Using church funds, he bought himself a large house on a hill in northwestern Atlanta, along with two brand new Cadillac Eldorados.
2: Hulon's partner, Billy, was living it up as well. Although he remained slightly more modest than Hulon, he lavishly decorated his apartment, even installing a velvet throne with a white-tasseled canopy in his living room.
3: The partner's new lifestyles didn't go unnoticed. At 10.30 p.m. on May 23, 1969, three men rang Billy's doorbell.
2: Assuming they had an appointment with Billy, his wife let them in without hesitation. The moment they set foot in the living room, they pulled out pistols and opened fire.
3: Billy grabbed a gun he kept under his throne and fired off a few rounds. But it was no use. He died in his living room from three gunshots to the back.
2: The police assumed it was a robbery attempt, but the case wasn't so clear-cut. Billy had managed to fatally wound two of his killers. When the police found the bodies, they realized the attackers both lived in Jacksonville, Florida, over 300 miles away.
3: The third suspect was also apprehended later, in Chicago, which just so happened to be where the Nation of Islam's headquarters were located. Considering Hulon left the NOI on such bad terms, it's possible Elijah Muhammad ordered a hit on him and Billy.
2: Unfortunately, the case was never closed. For whatever reason, the surviving attacker was never prosecuted. But if Billy's murder intimidated Hulon, he didn't show it. After his partner's death, Hulon dedicated himself to making the modern Christian church even bigger.
3: As the congregation grew, Hulon bought more airtime in more cities all over the country with large black populations. His followers started calling him the king, and Hulon did nothing to discourage them. At an event for the modern Christian church's first anniversary on June 29, 1969, 33-year-old Hulon carried a scepter and wore a gold crown inlaid with red jewels.
2: The budding narcissism Hulon showed as a child had fully bloomed into what psychotherapist Dr. Joseph Burgo termed an extreme narcissist. Extreme narcissists are driven by an overwhelming desire to put themselves over others. One way they do this is by amassing vast sums of wealth. But as Burgo wrote, because there will always be someone more successful and wealthier, the extreme narcissist is never satisfied. He needs to continue amassing an ever larger fortune and flaunting it to everyone around him.
3: Dressed in his extravagantly royal garb, Hulon fit those descriptions to a T, Flaunting his wealth to the world, he promised his followers that he and he alone could miraculously cure whatever ailed them, if they subscribed to the fee structure of his blessing plan.
2: Described in a brochure that was distributed at his meetings, Hulon boasted that his blessing plan would supposedly help the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, Disorders disappear. Operations are canceled.
3: He also promised his followers great riches of their own, telling them, God wants you to be rich. The Bible says riches and wealth is the gift of God.
2: Hulon's followers deeply believed in his boastful claims. They were willing to go to the ends of the earth for the king. He knew that they would do anything for him, even kill
3: In the spring of 1970, 34-year-old Hulon spoke to about 200 congregants at a Sunday meeting at the modern Christian church's recently purchased Atlanta headquarters. When his sermon ended, Hulon turned to his bodyguard, Lucius Boyce.
2: He had only just recently hired Boyce and believed he was a spy from the NOI. He told his followers that Boyce was a hitman who had been hired to kill him.
3: It's not clear why Hulon believed this. Maybe he was paranoid about his former partner's killers coming back to finish the job. Maybe he feared that his extravagant displays of wealth made him a target. Maybe he just wanted to see how far his followers would go to protect him.
2: Hulon told the crowd he had proof to back up his claims, but his loyal devotees didn't need it. On Hulon's word alone, they crowded around Boyce and mercilessly beat him.
3: Somehow, Boyce survived the attack. After he recovered, he filed a slander lawsuit against Hulon.
2: But the case never went to trial. Hulon's lawyer successfully argued that the First Amendment gave him broad protections of freedom of speech, especially within the context of religion.
3: With the backing of his loyal followers, Hulon continued to grow the modern Christian church. In 1974, he decided the organization was ready to take another step.
2: At the age of 39, Hulon amended the church's corporate charter to turn it into a social, economic, and spiritual behemoth. Hulon appointed himself president and national minister for life and made preparations to expand the modern Christian church's scope far beyond a simple ministry. While
3: the church grew, Hulon continued to skim from its funds to enrich himself. Donations kept rolling in under the guise of helping the needy with transportation services, housing, clothing, and food. In reality, the money was going straight into Hulon's pocket.
2: Eventually, though, Hulon got too greedy. In 1978, his followers finally caught on to what he was doing and sued Hulon for fraud. But once
3: again, Hulon was one step ahead. Before the authorities could corner him, he took his children and disappeared without a trace, leaving his wife Chloe and his crumbling empire behind.
2: But Hulon never stayed down for long. In short order, he reappeared in a new city with another new name and another new religion.
3: Coming up, Hulon makes his final transformation.
2: And now back to the story. In
3: 1978, 43-year-old Hulon Mitchell was forced to leave Atlanta after his followers in the modern Christian Church sued him for using church funds to personally enrich himself.
2: Hulon abandoned the self-aggrandizing persona of Father Michelle in late 1978 and made his way to Orlando, Florida. It was here that he started calling himself "Brother Love." Falling back on the
3: recruitment techniques he had learned from the Nation of Islam, Hulon wandered the streets of downtown Orlando, trying to attract new followers.
2: Something Hulon hadn't left behind in Atlanta was his charisma. He quickly gained between 15 and 20 devotees, mostly young women. One of them was a recent divorcee named Linda Gaines.
3: Eleven years Hulon's junior, Linda was struggling to raise her three kids on her own. After meeting Hulon at a social event, she quickly fell under his spell.
2: Linda liked Hulon's strict moral code. Unlike her ex-husband, he didn't drink, didn't get high, and seemed to have raised his kids with respect and love. Although both of them denied their relationship was ever sexual in nature, Hulon and his four children soon moved into Linda's apartment.
3: While Linda and his other followers financially supported him, Hulon dedicated his time to forming a more concrete spiritual identity. He read constantly, attempting to unlock the Bible's secrets.
2: Hulon was particularly interested in the Old Testament and the Black Hebrew movement. Originating in the late 1800s, the Black Hebrew movement preached that the original Hebrews in the Bible were actually Black and that Black people were God's true chosen ones. In that respect, it was similar to the Nation of Islam, which claimed that black people were the original man and were Allah's chosen people.
3: The message of black empowerment appealed to Hulan. Reflecting back on his childhood, he began to believe that he truly was the burning bush, the all-powerful force that would guide his people to deliverance.
2: But in order for Hulan to reach as many followers as he could, he couldn't stay in Orlando, Although the city had quickly grown since Disney World began construction in 1965, it didn't have a large enough population for Hulon's purposes. But there was a city further to the south that was absolutely perfect.
3: In 1978, Miami was teeming with would-be messiahs. The city was gripped with racial tension. Its sizable black community was all but forgotten pushed to the bottom of the societal ladder by the white-dominated political system and the quickly-growing influence of Cuban
2: immigrants. Hugh was certain that what he perceived as a downtrodden, desperate people would be receptive to his message. But he knew it would be a challenge to break into Miami's religious scene. If he was going to make an impact, he'd need more manpower. And there was only one group of people he could trust to follow him into battle, his family.
3: In early 1979, 43 year old Hulon returned to his hometown of Enid, Oklahoma. But he wasn't going back as Hulon Mitchell. He was going as Akmoshe Israel, Hebrew for Brother Moses Israel. Like Moses, Hulon was determined to lead his people to deliverance.
2: Although Hulon had enthusiastically preached a Christian message just the year before, he now told his family that black Christians were stuck in mental graves of ignorance. But he had risen from the dead and undertaken a new divine mission.
3: As Hulon later wrote, he believed that a black man that wears a cross on the planet Earth lies and says he loves everybody, but he's a damnable liar going straight to hell. He doesn't love his own black brothers and sisters, except to use them and to steal your money.
2: His opinion was informed by experience. After all, he had done it to his own followers. But now, Hulon insisted that he had turned over a new leaf.
3: He knew that his nascent religious movement wouldn't appeal to everyone in his family, least of all his father, who still preached a decidedly Christian message to his congregation. But Hulon didn't push the issue. Instead, he started holding daily lectures at a local school, sharing his message with anyone who was interested.
2: As he had hoped, some of his students included Hulon's family members. His brother, Marvin, eagerly joined Hulon's cause, as did his sister, Jean. When Hulon returned to Miami to lay the groundwork for his new movement, Jean became his ambassador back in Enid.
3: By holding classes at her house and distributing Hulon's literature, Jean was able to recruit a group of about 20 people willing to move to Miami.
2: In early 1980, Jean and the others packed their belongings and headed for South Florida. Hulon was already hard at work recruiting new members to what he called the Nation of Yahweh, after the Hebrew word for God.
3: Using select Bible passages, Hulon promised prospective followers that they were God's true chosen people. One of his favorites was Daniel 7, 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool.
2: After reading this passage, Hulon instructed the people listening to his sermon to run their hands through their thick, curly hair. It was just like the woolen hair atop God's own head.
3: Hulon also liked to cite Genesis 15, 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years.
2: In Hulon's opinion, this passage reflected black people's struggle as slaves bracketed by first coming to American shores in 1555 and the birth of the Civil Rights Movement around 1955, though neither of those dates represents a particularly exact or accurate figure.
3: Slowly but surely, Hulon gained new followers in Miami. At first, he only asked them to contribute 10% of their wages so the Nation of Yahweh could help the black community at large. There was no sense that the money was going anywhere but to charitable causes.
2: In addition to preaching the inherent divinity of black people, Hulon used current events to argue a wide-ranging conspiracy against the black population of America. Miami was particularly bad. In September 1979, a white off-duty police officer fatally shot a young black man who had stopped to urinate on the street. Instead of facing punishment, the officer received a merit-pay increase.
3: But nothing compared to the Arthur McDuffie case. In late 1979, the police pursued a black insurance salesman named Arthur McDuffie after he fled a minor traffic violation.
2: Eventually, the police caught up to him. Somewhere between 6 and 12 officers viciously beat McDuffie with heavy flashlights.
3: He died from the beating. But instead of coming clean, the officers tried to make it seem like McDuffie had died in a motorcycle accident. However, when the coroner's report came in, it was obvious what had really killed him. Four of the police officers were arrested and charged with murder.
2: With the trial date set for May of 1980, Hulon used the publicity from the case to attract new followers. As interest in his movement grew, Hulon was finally able to establish a base of operations at the Joseph Caleb Center in Miami's predominantly black Liberty City neighborhood. He held meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday morning.
3: The center boasted a thousand-seat auditorium, a library, a black history archive room, a food stamp office, and classrooms.
2: In May of 1980, around 50 of Hulon's followers gathered at the Joseph Caleb Center to watch the Arthur McDuffie trial unfold. Hulon predicted that the all-white jury would exonerate the four police officers. Tragically, he was right.
3: The not guilty verdict was delivered on May 17, 1980 at 2.45 p.m. By 5 p.m., angry groups threw rocks and bottles at police officers in Liberty City. The first fatality occurred around 6 p.m., when a mob killed a white vagrant. By 8 p.m., buildings were on fire, and the riots raged throughout Miami's black neighborhoods.
2: The violence lasted for over three days, but as a city mourned, Hulon celebrated. While he wasn't encouraging his followers to participate in the riots, he capitalized on the racial tension to attract attention to his movement newcomers flooded his services, eager to hear his message of black power and white injustice.
3: Hulon promised them that they would get their due. In time, God would strike down the evil white man and the chosen people of the nation of Yahweh would inherit a new paradise on earth.
2: Hulon's belief that he and he alone could lead his followers to salvation was indicative of what psychologists have termed the Messiah complex. As described by clinical psychologist Stephen A. Diamond, PhD, people who suffer from this complex believe they can save people from existential aloneness, freedom, anxiety, responsibility to think for ourselves and decide on our own behavior, and provide hope and meaning to counteract our lack of purpose in life and despair. As
3: their divine leader, Hulon urged his growing flock to band together, He encouraged them to pull their resources and separate themselves from the evils of white society. They were all too eager to obey him.
2: Once again, Hulon had successfully amassed a base of loyal followers who would carry out his every order. He'd learned from his past mistakes. He wouldn't alienate them by living extravagantly.
3: Rather than promising individual wealth, he urged his followers to enrich the black community as a whole and They idolized him for it.
2: But being a revered figure in Miami's black community wasn't enough. Hulon wanted more. He wanted his people to see him for what he truly believed he was, a god. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two on the Nation of Yahweh next Tuesday. As the movement grew, Hulon became more and more convinced of his own divinity. But as his iron grip over his followers tightened, he had to resort to increasingly violent tactics to keep his empire intact.
3: For more information on the Nation of Yahweh, Amongst the many sources we used, we found Sidney P. Friedberg's book, Brother Love, Murder, Money, and a Messiah, extremely helpful to our research.
2: And as always, you can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory.
3: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
3: Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Muller. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults is written by Alex Benedon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.